Ready to go? Take that. Once again, disclaimer, Sony Computer Entertainment Japan did not <laughs> disclose acid tabs in copies of Jumping Flash. Okay, fair enough. In fact, no, we've got somebody who played this at launch. Steve, tell us about the acid taps. <laughs> <laughs> survivors and welcome to episode two of memory card lane the nostalgia show brought to your eyes and ears by the first aid spray podcast and our wonderful backers over at patreon you can support the show for as little as one dollar a month and additional tiers offer access to early and bonus content just like this to find out more visit patreon.com slash fa spray pod in this episode we hop back to 1995 to cover one of the early breakouts of the playstation it's jumping flash i'm your host jordan and joining me on the panel today, he's part rabbit, part robot, all cop, Steve Valance. Hello, everybody. And his LinkedIn describes him as the monocled evil genius astrophysicist turned resort manager, Sherwin Matthews. That is a date, mate. Yes. How are you both? Pretty stoked. Pretty, pretty, uh, pretty looking forward to talking about this game. Kinda, kinda wondering what everyone's take is. It's, uh, it's a strange one for me. This is going to be interesting. I, I like the idea. It's a strange one for you. Not everybody it else. Is. Just you. I'm, I'm the one with the backseat history to it all, and I believe you folks came in fresh, so, yeah. I suppose a more pressing question is, are you fully recovered from Excalibur 2555 AD? <laughs> I mean, uh, just tune into the last episode to get our general thoughts on that. In this instance, the sword is in the air, and the person is in the ground. It's very strange. It's almost like the game is telling you that this is a game of opposites. It's kind of like, well, the sword's in the air, the person's in the ground. You know, the game is advertised as fun, and yet it is not. <laughs> I, I think there's not been enough time to have sufficient therapy to survive that. Right? You, you don't really just get over it that quickly. But let's forget about 2555. Let's go back to spring 1995. It's a bit of a weird year, isn't it, 1995? What are your thoughts on this as an experience of growing up in 1995 and the games that you were playing, as well as the actual industry and how things were moving? Uh, thinking back now on what we see and what, what happens, it's, it's, it's strange what was really impressive and blows your mind. The likes of Wipeout and Tekken 1 and, you know, this, as we're going to get into, it's kind of surreal, really, because, you know, everything blows a nine-year-old's mind. So it makes sense, right? I would argue it's it's gonna change. Uh, there are things that I don't quite look on with such rose-tinted respect. Let's put it that way. Yeah, it's a transitional year for the games industry and for games in general. There's a lot of teething issues as the introduction of 3D gaming really starts to take off. But it's also a point for the market where you're having console manufacturers that are either jumping into the next generation quite early or they're sitting back. Sure, where were you in, in terms of what you were playing in 1995? Yeah, I was, I was just trying to think, like, this is all a pre-Resident Evil world. I think my only experience with something like a PlayStation would have been sort of playing one of my friend's ones at the time. I guess I was still SNES-enabled. 
So I think I would have been doing something along the lines of just replaying Zelda over and over again. Uh, things like Metroid or whatever else. I know a lot. Of my, I know a few of my friends had this fabled PlayStation device, and, and the next era of games was upon us. And I wasn't quite sure what to make of it. Like there was so much interesting, cool stuff. Actual video footage of actors moving around and stuff was kind of interesting. Um, Meanwhile, we've got Toe Jam and Earl. Right. Um, so, so, <laughs> so stuff like stuff like that is kind of there, and I think that's kind of interesting. And I look at it a little bit more uh, favorably than Steve. I remember having this general sense that something is shifting in the world of gaming at that time. There's a groundswell of something that's changing. You almost feel like you're on the cusp of this new frontier that's yet to explode, which is exactly what happened in the next couple of years, of course. So yeah, I, I remember this. I remember it a little bit more fondly, perhaps. Um, and stuff like, you know, being blown away by stuff like Tekken, for example. Bearing in mind you're used to Street Fighter 2. Stuff like that, I think, was always cool. Absolutely, and it's a it's a very experimental landscape that's been emerging here over over the course of well the twelve month stretch from when the PlayStation first came out back in late ninety four. You're seeing that transition to new types of games, but everything is a bit boom or bust. This is a landscape that you could take over if successful and reign over it really because there's nothing to really have parallel to. And as such, you did see a lot of kind of early games that come out that don't necessarily have a name that sticks. But if you were to find something that was able to utilize new design and new technology in a way that really couldn't be matched by anybody and do it competently, you end up notching yourself into the history books regardless of actual lasting impact. And I suppose that kind of brings us back to Jumping Flash here, because this was one of those examples that stood out uh, as a sort of an early success, especially for Sony. So it was originally a tech demo from 1994. It was called Springman. Uh, and it was purely just to show off the actual hardware capabilities of the PlayStation, more really its rendering capabilities. Uh, so we didn't really know too much about this game until it started to get more thorough previews in early 1995 by which point it was already being seen as the next step in platformers, which was largely considered one of the oldest genres of gaming at that time. And it's funny that it's something that is quite alien looking, and yet still its core fundamentals come across to most publications as being a platformer in a, in a very traditional sense, something that is quite easy as a concept to jump onto and say, well, oh, this, is, this is in effect like Mario in a certain way. So Jumping Flash released April 27th, 1995. That's in Japan. It released later in the other territories. And it was released by Sony Computer Entertainment Japan, who at this point, they'd had a few games come out, but they hadn't necessarily had a hit. This proved to be the difference maker. This was widely praised as a pioneer of its genre in a way that was defining a new genre. Um, and it was consistently well-received, both in the previews and the reviews. So this was widely an early success as a standout for what 3D platforming was going to be, an early blueprint of, of something to follow. So that's quite curious and maybe something that's a little over generous for 1995, but that was a different time. This is 2021. And I suppose the question now is, does it still fare in 2021? So. I'll go over to Steve first. This was your pick on the wheel, right? Was, yeah. It was the, I want to say, if it's not the first, it's like launch day PlayStation 1 game for us. You know, not necessarily launch day in the in Europe, but the first PS1 game, one of, that we had. So, yeah, a fair bit of nostalgia, I'd say. Uh, back then, I, I am obviously 
child and, and, and impressed by everything. Now I'm like, wow, they pulled this off in 1995. And this feels like if it was released now with a slightly better resolution, you'd get away with saying some small indie studio released it. It's got that kind of out, outside the box thinking that we tend to see with modern platformer games and, you know, shooting games and generally games in the 3D environment these days. I'm going to be honest, it's, it's a bit wacky and a bit weird. Now, you did not play this game growing up, did you, Sherwin? What was your experience with this? Uh, there's a couple of things. The first one is that of the three of us, I am I'm the I'm the one who didn't get very far into this. I I suffer from uh, from motion sickness, and, and this game was enough to just stop me in my tracks. Anything vaguely VR just kind of makes me have to take the headset off and step away from it. Obviously, this is not that, but very very similar thing um, in terms of how the motion kind of just completely threw me. But I think this is a game where just in thinking about this, you know, afterwards and the sort of experience, and I must admit, I did have to, I, yeah, I didn't, I caught up on a few videos here and there to kind of catch up with the experience. I didn't want to come into this literally with not much running time in the actual game. I think it's, it's one of those things where because I didn't experience this when I was younger, when it first came out, it's impossible not to see it through that lens of historically kind of appreciating it for what it was. And I, I'm very conscious that will take away from, um, yeah, that will sort of take away or, or color my experience of this but the innovation on offer here was insane especially when you like just even looking at it now i'm kind of seeing it and going okay there's some really interesting ideas happening here and especially when you then apply it to a filter of okay let's go back to 95 what else is there exactly as we were saying before this is something which it's crazy like this really is something where i'm not surprised to discover it's it's something where someone wants to show off the capabilities of a machine and go look we can do this now the fact that it kind of evolved into a, a game of sorts it's quite something else, and, and I think it really shows that sort of idea of... It's almost kind of that proving ground that original PlayStation games had, where there wasn't so much focus on that kind of AAA experience. It's more focused around, this is what this machine can do, which is cool now, and it's just like quick fire, kind of, here's some raw ideas, here's some stuff, just like throw it out there, because people are kind of lapping it up with this new generation of consoles, this new experience, and going, wow, you know, we've arrived. This is the next thing. This isn't. We're no longer sitting there playing on the Super Nintendos or whatever else. We are now moving into a, a different generation of 32-bit consoles, and that's what we're doing. And I think that's that's the most interesting part about this. If I'm going to repeat that one word over and over, it's got to be innovation. You um, not to put cart before horse or anything, but do you feel like this this at times feels more like a tech demo with a cutesy wrapper? Is that, is that a fair assessment? You think? One hundred percent, yes. Um, I, yeah, and I think there's a few games of that age that do that as well if you think back to um and just in terms of the type of games i don't know how you guys remember back um like the original gran turismo on the playstation that only had like i think three tracks or even maybe even less than that maybe like one or two tracks and basically doing them on different difficulty settings just opened up a new part of the track and that's it there's barely any cars to it i think a couple of them are just new skins of an existing one like the actual size of some of those games was tiny because it wasn't really about kind of creating an experience where people would be playing. You know, we're back in a time when people bought games and then played them to absolute death. There is no Steam store. There is no kind of discounted games really out there. You got your game and you you, know, you played it. You played the hell out of it, so the ditch didn't work anymore. And and that's kind of what this is. It's the sort of thing where you could put this out into the market. People would get this and then go, okay, this is my game, and I'm just going to play it over and over and over again. And I think as a result. You could have something that's exactly as you say, Steve, is more of a tech demo kind of feel to it um, than an actual full-fledged game because that was okay. The way that we approached games, the way we thought about games wasn't so sophisticated back then as what it is now. Like, if you released it now, obviously people would tear it to shreds and go, where's the rest of it? Uh, that's not something that you would worry about with this. 
it was definitely something that they remarked in reviews at the time, but they were certainly more forgiving uh, about the aspect of it being sort of shorter and not necessarily having as many levels as it perhaps should. But absolutely, I am with you, Shuren, in that I also did not grow up with this game. This is a brand new experience for me, uh, albeit 26 years late. I also kind of had to play this with 1995 in mind and, and understanding, you know, just how many games have come since, but also how kind of bare the landscape was for 3D platforming games at this point in time. Uh, I did see one of the previews actually sort of the best way that they could describe it was calling it Doom with jumping. Which, you know, and it's not completely wrong, but it's uh, it's an odd thing to sort of pick out as the best analogue to try and convey what exactly what this is. Especially when most of these uh, impressions are coming from magazines where the, you don't have video to actually see what's going on. You only have screenshots and uh, whatever description the writers can come up with. It's interesting, though, because even though this is very early concept for 3D platforming, I was surprised and I was uh, impressed with how easy it was to actually get into the actual fundamentals of the game. Its whole design philosophy is established very fast. You can, you can turn around, you can move, you can shoot, you can jump. A lot of the things that you need are at different elevations, and so you need to explore. You start picking up items, and they tell you you need three of this item to get to the next stage. Yeah, within five minutes, within that first level, you're really starting to understand the point of the game. It's not like you're feeling lost. I can't always say that for especially early PlayStation 1 games, where it really was a wild west of ideas. So many games that even now you kind of go back to when it kind of struggled to understand how they work. This, absolutely not. This is as plain as day to me. To try and sort of sum up what this what this gameplay is, as Steve, could you help us describe what Jumping Flash actually entails? First of all, it's it's first person, which is obviously not typical for any kind of platformer. But give us a better outline of what Jumping Flash is. Uh, so this is obviously colored by preconceptions. But it, it, I, I feel like it's a... Uh... A precursor to Metroid Prime, uh, you know, as in you've actually got the same kind of tank controls and there's a lot of uh, exploration. Uh, the levels themselves are more open world, abstract, themed little zones, not unlike Sonic and stuff, but it's like per level, even when you're in a set of worlds. Uh, you, you move around them, you've got like tank control movement, forward is forward, back is back, and then you turn. And jumping is literally just a thruster on your bum. You press it multiple times, then you can jump three times in the basic game, and then you can unlock a super mode later on, which I'll get into in a little bit. And uh, the, yeah, the goal of the game is to find basically four carrots throughout the environment while maybe blasting your infinite ammo blasters at misshapen frog monsters. I say monsters, they're actually kind of adorable, the way of top hats. And then hitting on exit to get to the next level. It's actually really, really awkward to describe, but really, really, really more of a visual thing. Thank God for the video. It does feel like when you first at least turn the game on and you, you see the first level, it does feel like a bit of a tech demo. Yeah. You almost don't know what is meant to be taken sort of seriously as as part of the game design and what is just there for decoration it's populated by enemies which are largely just there most of the places that you need to get to um, you're not going to be sort of hampered by the enemies too much if they have a projectile they'll have like a homing attack otherwise they just mill around being pain in the ass they're not really going for you yeah, absolutely. And especially in those early stages, you can almost ignore uh, quite a few of the uh, land-based, uh, you know, enemies or anything that's not really kind of uh, up at the top platforms. But it's almost a bit of a, like a scavenger hunt because uh, you're after the three carrots, but you can also have all of these different weapons that you can pick up in additional slots and you don't necessarily need them for the stages. There's no enemy that's really that tough, but then you'll get to a boss and suddenly it kind of, it, it makes sense. 
Well, was that a good implementation or is that something that probably should have been signposted a little bit better? We have to give it the 1995 excuse, but it feels like if you could have built a more control to it, like you can choose which weapons to carry because you, you have three slots and you're constantly overriding when you pick up stuff, yeah? And there is a definitive, I quote unquote, meta that you could use on these bosses. I mean, a lot of them are really rudimentary. You just jump on them and blast at the same time. But if you have the right sub weapon, you can rinse through them in seconds. I feel like there is a, there is room to specialize, kind of make it a bit more um, structured and adjust the enemy composition to compensate for it. So you're not just saving them for the bosses, because in the meantime, you're just basically building a deck to rinse the boss. So with regards to power-ups, there's some which perhaps stand out better than others, apart from the carrots which are obviously required to be collected in order for you to progress through the stage. There's a bunch of other power-ups. Do you recall any in particular, Steve, that stood out to you as the ones you you know like to find? There's things like Time Stop and stuff like that. Yeah, um, so Time Stop is OP, and not because it stops time, but also gives you an indication of where the other items you're looking for on the radar which is handy on the bigger maps because they like to scatter them around on top of that there is also the power pill which is basically a vulnerability lsd mode it's got a very basic 1990s rainbow filter on your vision and if you're not going to hurl you can at least power through enemies by just contact it's mario star basically but comes across as your robot is having one hell of a trip Otherwise, it's the sub-weapons and stuff are really the, the main thing. Roman candles are basically Star Trek phaser beams, and then you've got twister little things that are god-awful sub-weapons that seem to be bloody everywhere to kind of ruin your deck, it feels like. And then the cherry bomb, which is like a mini nuke. Kind of cool. Kind of cool. Yeah, I, I think um, I'm glad that you coined the term LSD mode. Um, because that's the, that's, that's the best way I could describe anything in this game. There's just so much going on in terms of overload. Yeah, I was not a big fan of, uh, I think, the Twisters. Yeah, uh, the, yeah, the junk. Just... If I if I picked up a Twister, I felt more inclined to try and go back to the previous level and actually get a better power-up. Um, but, you know, you work with what you get, I guess. For the listener's context, okay, if most of these weapons are conventional, fire a blaster or launch a missile or launch a grenade, these are throw a load of rubbish scattered landmines around like you're feeding the birds at like a park with some bread. They're completely ineffectual, they make a load of noise, and then they bugger off. They're not really useful in any boss fight except maybe one. There is always that one unpopular power-up in, in just about any game, especially things like, say, Castlevania or, or Ghosts and Goblins. That is exactly what the Twister is. You you don't want it. If you if you see it on a map or if you're playing Jumping Flash, just avoid it because it's just not worth it. It's just, I don't know, It just it, its impact just feels very damp. I was going to say, also, public service announcement, do not feed birds with landmines. Oh, that's a bad thing. <laughs> and if you were listening to this at the park, well, we've saved you there. I'm just picturing like Paul Gladys slowly looking at a purse going, Oh, I've got this. Uh, uh, <laughs> maybe maybe I'll put the landmine away for a safe day. Uh, sorry. <laughs> um, this is this is for either of you to answer, but uh, what was your what was your high score in this game? Do you remember? No, 
I, I know it gave me extra lives, and other than that, I was kind of blurring. It was just numbers. It's, it's always funny to kind of go back to these old games and see how important uh, high scores were, or at least how important it was perceived to be. Uh, this is a very arcade-style game, I will say that. If this had ended up in an arcade cabinet, I could kind of believe it. It has time limits, it has uh, high scores. It definitely could have been designed in a way that's meant to sort of gobble coins. But the inverse uh, as a home release is that when you actually get coins in this game, which is where you get uh, a portion of your high score from, it really doesn't necessarily feel like something that's important. From what I understand, you can actually get 1-ups if your score reaches is a certain level but i never really noticed uh, yeah I mean, it's strange right because i'm pretty sure maybe one time i gave a damn about high scores in like robotron or sonic the hedgehog but now i just see a bunch of numbers and go, oh, that's cool without i mean online leaderboards help i think we've been spoiled by the context of actually seeing the competition in this it's a case of you just got a bunch of numbers you got a one-up great is that fair is that uncharitable um, I mean, I probably, if I had not sort of just remembered it, uh, I probably would have easily forgotten the high score was even in Jumping Flash. It's not something that really matters that much. I'd actually disagree with that a little bit. Do you remember when I was talking about how, you know, w w these old games around the time, you, I mean, it's one of the established metrics that we have back then in 95. Like, that's how, that's a memorable thing about your post-game experience was what was your high score. And it is absolutely something that you saw in cabinets across the land in arcades that mythical idea of hey i need to record my initials into this thing and then that way they'll stand the test of time uh, yeah. and you know people will always try to beat them but that translated into the home experience i 100 percent get where you're coming from in terms of saying well you know it's not something where you can show it off to the world like you know the most you're ever going to get is my friends come over and go wow i can't beat your score and this might be my own personal experience but because you're playing this singular game over and over or this singular set of games it's the same as when you're playing something like Resident Evil to come back to it, where you're always constantly trying to beat your best your best time as you go through the thing. It's the same with this. Like, what's my high score? I'm trying to get the best score I can possibly get because I'm just playing the game over and over and over again until eventually I either lose it, it gets scratched, or I move on to the next game. So I think there is a there is a place for that. To this game's detriment, though, it doesn't really make much of a fanfare of it. When you beat a level, it will throw like a few little things of like, you got this bonus, that bonus, and that bonus. When you beat the game... It just cuts to an FMV, and you don't get actually a look at your final score or anything like that. So oh, you don't get okay. to like really, you don't really get time to, should we say, savor the moment and inscribe your place in history or what have you. It's just case of you remember what you did. Okay. Yeah, that, that I think that might be why I'm a little bit uh, hard on it. Oh, with with that with that metrics there though, that, that immediately makes more sense to me now. In which case. But I appreciate your defense of high scores in a home experience. It certainly is an aspect that is strong with regards to replayability, especially for shorter games like this or arcade style games like this. Uh, what did you think of the bonus stages? They, they feel like pointless because the game is fairly, and even on its hard mode, easy. If that makes any sense. I think that they're a novel idea. You've got to get around a, uh, a smaller environment, which you can fall off and shoot like 20 targets, essentially. It's shoot the targets from Smash Brothers in 3D. You're shooting balloons instead. Yeah. Is that, is that an uncharitable stance? <laughs> No, no, I, I mean, in my books, it's fair. The bonus stages were the areas of the game that I struggled with the most. That's probably more on my part, but I wasn't necessarily that fussed about them. So I, I guess we should probably cover what exactly entails with the controls, because I personally didn't have too many teething issues with regards to the controls. But how did, how did you guys fare? 
I'm going to say, yeah, considering anything else, really surprisingly intuitive. Nothing felt kind of egregiously out of place in terms of, oh, this thing is here and I'm trying to bend my hand in a sort of hooked fashion to try and push a button or anything along those lines or anything else. Mostly, it just felt pretty straightforward. And considering, I mean, obviously, we are talking about a game which is not necessarily the most straightforward in terms of gameplay. You know, there was nothing that felt really out of place or really jarring or anything else. You know, simplistic to control is the honest answer. So, a little while ago, I may have said the words, it reminds me of Metroid Prime. And I want to go into this a bit further in that, you know, the way you move in Metroid Prime has the same kind of feel of weight to your character. And there's even a, uh, a, when Samus double jumps, or I think just jumps in general today, eventually start to peek downwards and look down. Not, not as down as Robert does in this, but you know, same kind of level of movement. The only thing that Robert's lacking in comparison is a strafe. He even has a dedicated look button, not too dissimilar to GameCube, uh, Metroid Prime 1 and 2. And I think that's why my memory and my ability to control both games blend together. I realize it's a very strange culture clash in that one is a uh, cutie platformer and one is a, you know, a third-person Metroidvania going through an alien world. But uh, the fact that forward is still forward, back is still back, left and right, jump, shoot, it, it, it's strange. And you even have infinite ammo in both. All, all Robert needs is some visors and some toggles and he's halfway to Samus in, in my book. So yeah, it, it's strangely ahead of its time, I feel like, even though it, it looks like a PS1 game from 1995. And it does so while you are in a sort of mech, can yeah. you perhaps call it. You know, Robert is a part rabbit, part robot. But unlike many mech games that I have played, which are obviously intentionally meant to feel quite clunky and slow and tankish, uh, I never felt this here. And this is considering the fact that this game originally came out on a PlayStation that didn't have DualShock. So you weren't using an analog stick to actually move Robert around and yet despite that and despite many games that did certainly feel clunky with that control scheme uh, this does not and uh, yeah I think the controls probably are the best aspect of this game in terms of actually sort of getting its ideas across because if you can get people at least controlling the game confidently then just about everything else can fall into place more naturally anyway. I guess we can now talk about the story what there is of it. the safety of peaceful worlds, an evil scientist who frightens children and is bent on slavery. A giant robot has seized a peaceful world and carried it off. Aloha's evil plan is to turn it into a huge private retreat for himself. Universal City Hall, here to help the people. Robert can do the job. Let's go, Robert. Jump and go. You know, this could be best summed up by me saying there's a story. There are cutscenes and things happen. Right. But do and, they make sense? <laughs> you know, I kind of uh, appreciate the esoteric madness of some games. And this is definitely something where I imagine that's what I would have lent into at the time. It, I mean, it, I will say it feels very much a product of its time in terms of it's just a very um, weird and wacky and that's okay kind of take on anything. There's not anywhere near the same sort of level of sophistication as what storytelling that what we're used to now and what was required at the time was was a much lower bar. So this, this doesn't feel like it really steps outside of that at any point. But again, partly because I didn't spend so enough time with this thing, this, I couldn't tell you anything at all about the story except that much surprise. Well, I, actually, Joe, I'll tell you what. I'll be really interested to hear you guys and find out whether you feel there's a really deep story that I've missed here. 
full narrative rundown of Jumping Flash by Steve, age 35. <laughs> so, all right, um, from, what I, from what I can glean, there is a, uh, a Dr. Wily slash Dr. Robotnik-alike called Baron Aloha, who has basically gone to the oddly named Crater Planet, carved bits of it out, thus producing craters in said planet, and took his army of oh, intelligent mushroom beings to form a resort slash theme park for his own personal benefit. And so the galactic government, which is known in this as Universal City Hall, was dispatched to their number one agent, Robert, to stop him. And uh, yeah, the FMVs for the time were like, oh, wow, that's cool. I'm nine years old. Now they just look like weird CGI boxes, not too dissimilar to reboot with rather cutesy mushroom things with palm trees on their heads called moo-moos and everything else kind of blazes together uh it's it's an excuse plot right like if you baron aloha doesn't get much character development except when you beat him the first time and then ghosts and goblins you and goes right go back and do it harder uh and all it basically boils down to is aha but we were just preparing now the real battle begins robert has no character development despite being i think they're the voice your player character hears throughout the game so don't expect a deep plot here. This isn't like, you know, Resident Evil 1. Yeah, it's just to kind of add some sense to this. It's funny because recently I actually beat Sonic Colors, which is, in effect, the same plot with extra steps. I want to say the, the highlight, I say highlight in the strangest terms of the story, is when you beat a boss, you then get a small vignette of the Moo Moo's at a bar getting plastered and in their, drowning their sorrows as you move on to the next stage. And again, it's just a case of, oh, wow, Robert's awesome, we suck, over and over again. But something about seeing these pre-rendered renditions of these characters that's kind of charming, and you see a few enemies in it. I actually quite like the design of the, the Moo Moo characters because they, they kind of look like something out of Mario Sunshine or something. They're quite charming. But yeah, there's, uh, other than that, not much to the story. I know that there are two more games after this. I don't know, maybe they flesh out the lore? I can give you a spoiler, dear listeners. In, in Jumping Flash 1, you're rescuing jet pods to get to the next stage. In Jumping Flash 2, you are rescuing the Moo Moos from another evil, bad, even badder a bad guy, who I believe is a banana and a tutu. Is that actually the plot? Yeah. Baron Aloha gets his bum kicked so hard that he calls Robert for help. I do I do like how we're not, how you felt the need to question this. That sounds perfectly rational, considering this game, from what I've seen of <laughs> it. That sounds very sensible. That's the threshold for me. Like, Banana and a Tutu is just, it's its over the line. I'm like, okay, now I need explanation. Now I need, like, Science Man <laughs> to show up and explain how we got here, you know? <laughs> Otherwise, the story kind of uh, exists. Yes, yes. <laughs> the story exists. That is possibly the greatest way I've heard anyone describe any game story ever. <laughs> the story exists it gets points for that <laughs> there, yeah it's just to basically say there is a story well, of course one of the things that does stand out about jumping flash is actually how it looks it's a very bright and varied world this is not always the case with the sort of early 3d games where you're kind of maybe wrestling with more photorealism in sort of textures and that this is absolutely not photorealistic uh, or even trying to be. This is extremely cartoony, extremely colourful. How did you find the visuals? Uh, okay, right. This is a this is a matter of taste, isn't it? I feel like having this recent playthrough is uh, has been somewhat marred 
by the fact I'm playing it through a PS3, maybe. I don't know. I, I, I feel like the resolution is too low for my poor eyes. And it's just kind of a blurry wash of bright colors. I do like the shapes of the polygonal animals, and even some of the environments, but it's hella blurry. I can appreciate the fact they even put like, you know, the PS1 distance fog in uh, to obviously save the engine some strain, but it kind of adds some atmosphere to some of the levels, namely the volcanic and ice-based levels. It's a step above, perhaps, MechWarrior 2 and stuff of that era, as in it's got textured backgrounds, but it's basically Doom with more geometry and verticality. That level of detail, I think, only the models are polygonal as opposed to just sprite-based. This, for me, feels very, very early PlayStation, unsurprisingly. It's something where it just feels very run-of-the-mill, like that's that kind of design that we were seeing around about then. I was, I'm literally actually, just as we think, there's, there's a game that I'm going to describe it as being similar to, which you may or may not be familiar with, uh, and I don't know when it came out, which is Stunt Race FX. For the Super Nintendo? For the Super Nintendo, and this is what it really reminded me of for a large part, yeah. which is exactly as you've said, wash of, of super bright colours and funky polygonal shapes that don't necessarily work too well together. It's almost like they kind of want to separate out and apart, and the engine is desperately trying to keep hold of everything, kind of rein it all in. But perhaps that's just stunt race effects, sort of colouring that a little bit. That's my take on it. It feels very much of the time. Yeah, the, again, as I said, this is a new frontier for gaming, and you know anything goes in that respect. And this kind of feels like it fits quite naturally into that. I personally really like this style um even though it is more for the utility for the way that the game needs to run but i love this kind of early 3d stuff where it's just so obvious what the polygons are it reminds me very much of things like Star Fox, and oh. in, a, in a more sort of stretched reference you know things like those early cg music videos like money for nothing or, or something that sort of stands <laughs> out in that really quite obviously blocky way it doesn't have to worry about maybe aging poorly I just think you look at this and you say, oh yeah, that's early 3D. But as far as early 3D goes, I think it stands up quite well. Growing up with N64 games where a draw distance was constantly an issue, I feel like this actually had a quite minimal problem where that concerned. Yeah, it's not like Kryptonite Fog in Superman 64. It's more of an aesthetic choice, it feels like. Was it actually called Kryptonite Fog? In, in Superman 64, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow, I... Why didn't more companies come up with that kind of stuff? I mean, Silent Hill, has the, limitations? Yeah. Silent Hill has the ominous fog, Superman 64 has the kryptonite fog, and then... Um, oh, Castlevania yeah. 64 had the cursed controls. <laughs> uh, one last thing with regards to the visuals uh, is actually the UI. This is obviously a first-person game. You have an overlay that is intended to be sort of the internals of the robot, and it provides all of the information uh, that you require, the score if you really need it, your time limit, uh, the map, your lives, as well as the three uh, slots for your uh, sub-weapons. It's interesting to actually see it all laid out there. You don't have to pause and go to refer to anything else. I don't necessarily think I use the map all that much, but it's it's nice to have it there as a radar. And um, most of the time I actually forgot about the UI. It just sort of blended uh, with the visuals. And that was a good thing, because it didn't get in the way of things. I I kind of lived and died by that radar. I've got to be honest, at least in this recent playthrough, it was my main catch-all thing to figure out where stuff was. Because I, I spent too, too much time trying to figure out what those points meant rather than actually just looking at the environment around me. And that's probably, that's a Steve problem. My only issue with the UI, even though it's a bit over the top and very 90sly developed, as in, yeah, you feel like you're in the cockpit of a weird robot mech, is this strange mechanism in the top middle of the screen that appears to be 
a, a teddy bear on a spring, and I, for the life of me, cannot figure out its purpose beyond telling you how many carrots you've got to pick up. And it dangles around like a, uh, a part of the human anatomy I don't want to say on a podcast. It's kind of like a weird <laughs> Well, it, it, it does it! How dare you, Steve? My, my poor, my poor ears. What would you call it? That, that strange abstract little object in the middle? Well, it's clearly a shot. <laughs> I think as a serious answer, I thought maybe it was uh, like a pull cord for when you do the jump. I don't know why that would be the thing that makes you jump up into the air. But that's the only time where it seems to move. If you're standing still and you, gy and you take a power pill, it starts gyrating violently. And to which, you know, I, I think you're right generally, but in that case, it's then applying it's either sentient or angry or that other thing that humans do when they're emotive. I'm I'm mostly terrified that you've described a testicle as a pull cord, but I'm staying away from that. That's just grim. That's exactly why there is an exclamation mark in the name of this game. Somebody was <laughs> getting pulled on the testicles as they were typing it out. It's jumping flash! <laughs> <laughs> Pain. And, then, and then everything else in a very, very squeaky voice afterwards. Um, yeah, let's let's get to the music then. I guess uh, it's uh... <laughs> yeah. Let, let me lead into this. The the soundtrack to this game is gloriously mid nineties, utter trash in the best possible way of describing it. You've got kind of that weird mix of dance music with generic kind of sort of old school game music sounds where it's just a selection of random noises from keyboards and so on and at the same time it just kind of just flows and it blasts at you at this this volume which it's the sort of thing where you would just really want to turn it down and just move away from it but there's something hypnotic that means you can't do that and you keep on listening to it over and over and over again like i may have tapped out of the actual gameplay the soundtrack has not escaped me i've sat there and listened to that while i've been working all all week um, because I just can't get away from it. See, it, I'd, I'd say it's gaming music, isn't it? It's exactly. like elevator music. Yeah, um, that's exactly what it is. It's it's not. You can't ever describe it as calming. It's chaotic enough that it it matches the gameplay, and it's also kind of completely aggressively mediocre at the same time. However, they make one brave statement on what level one one, which is traditionally your you know your your basic run of the mill stage starts with dance music and bagpipes. And, Is that uh, what they were meant to be? The, yeah, the, the bagpipe. I guess, I guess so. But I mean, I, I mean, what even was that first world? I just remember windmills. It's windmill land. I think you can't understand this game until you take a whole bunch of acid before start playing, and that goes also for the music. Oh, that's just—it's just a shame that we don't have like the original release because it actually came with acid tabs. Right. <laughs> I mean, you could probably buy the game on eBay, but don't do that in hope of getting acid, kids. So that's a bad uh, choice. Disclaimer: Sony Computer Entertainment Japan did not disclose acid tabs in copies of Jumping Flash. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's uh. I, um, have a look at the uh, the composer. Uh, Takio Muratsu uh, also did work on the uh, Legend of Dragoon, the first Legend of Dragoon game. 
uh, and and this isn't really meant to be a mark against the composer. I really I really don't mean it, but it does certainly kind of remind me of you know music classes at school, and you sort of just go in the room and there's there's about sixteen different keyboards that are all on at the same time, and people nobody can play. They're just all doing different synthesizer noises, and it eventually just all sort of crashes together. Strange, strange thing. There's no sort of grounding with the music. Would you say there is a theming to the music? Does it match the actual environments well? No, I would say some stages it does feel very like it's trying to be tropey, for a better term, and follow a theme. But generally, it's all over the place. Uh, like I would argue, it's fancy. it sounds more serene and chill in the volcanic nightmare second level as opposed to the opening, which again is just some greenery while it blasts bagpipes at you. So it, it, it's very mixed bag in terms of when they're hitting a target and trying to follow a quote-unquote theme and not. I think I think the best way to describe it is it's something where they start with a dance beat and then you layer into it at different timing intervals several copies of Pop and Twimby and starting them at different points having sped those games up. And some of them are sped up, some of them are slowed down. And it's just this raw chaos that's happening. Like that crazy kind of, we're going to start with this sort of, um, okay, we'll start one on the on the three, and then this one will start on like the six, and this one will start on the five, and then we'll just run with crazy, you know, just literally crazy, just overlay all of that over the top. That's the soundtrack. With a dance beat in the background that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Is this soundtrack uh, more chaotic or less chaotic than Excalibur 2555? The thing about Excalibur is, is that you can understand exactly where Excalibur is coming from because it is mediocre in every possible aspect, but it's quite run-of-the-mill mediocre. This is just craziness in many ways. We just aren't sophisticated enough to understand the mood that they wanted us to feel. Anything else to add for the music? The, 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 the composer actually went on to be part of the duo who made the Beat Mania stuff, oh. according to Wikipedia. I don't know how true that is, but that's kind of crazy when you think about it. After they sobered up. <laughs> got off the trucks <laughs> yeah. after the acid tabs that came with the copies of this game ran out uh, and they kind of went through rehab they then went on once, to make a, once again disclaimer sony computer entertainment japan did not <laughs> disclose acid tabs in copies of jumping flash okay fair enough in fact no we've got somebody who played this at launch steve tell us about the acid tabs <laughs> <laughs> I was but a wee boy. I know not what I was doing. That's the revelation for this particular episode. Um, looking looking yeah. for Steve, you always had a bit of a hunch to, you know, lit manuals when you first got a game anyway. So yeah. this time you just sort of looked out. You just sort of said, oh, this, this one tastes funny. It's like, all of a sudden, <laughs> well, why, is, why is the game case melting in my hand? That is a horrifying mental image um, that I'm probably never going to shift now and is forever marred by Jumping Flash. We are um, sorry that you live through this, but at the same time, we salute you. <laughs> Which is perhaps, again, uh, in the segues go, we can then move on to final thoughts. I suppose so. All right, I have one last question for you. This is a game that does not regularly come up in conversations, but every, every now and then it does with regards to PlayStation's legacy. Is this a consideration for a PlayStation Classic? That's a tricky one. I feel like there are, the PlayStation is such a potent little console with so many iconic brands and characters and, you know, 
RPGs. The point is there are that, that there are that many things that come out of that console that it kind of unfortunately slides further and further to the back. Saying that, uh, that PlayStation fighting game that's named and lose me, PlayStation All Stars, that's the one. I feel like we could have had less third-party characters and more Robots. Does that make any sense? Like Rob in Brawl, like you know, classic relics of characters. So it's 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 a mess. I feel like the, it needs reverence, but at the same token, there are so many other things that deserve reverence too. It's a really interesting one because when you think about the PlayStation's legacy, it's it's arguably one of the best legacies, if not the best legacies out there in terms of the actual games that came out on it and defined it. Something like this just sadly has no hope whatsoever of standing amongst such things. Part of me wants to think about this game as an evolutionary dead end. You know, it's something which tried something really innovative, really new and, and, and interesting, but then ultimately that was something that didn't prove to stick around very, very much. The other side of things... I kind of want to look at this and say this is a this is a wonderful relic. I mean, I, I'm supremely happy to have, have actually experienced this in some shape or form, purely because it's one of those wonderful games that time will forget, but it isn't just one of those run-of-the-mill games that got released. Like, arguably, if we think about Excalibur, right? Excalibur is a game which came out and was very run-of-the-mill, very basic, very simplistic for what it was, and it ultimately the reason why we're talking about it because it's infamy. This isn't one of those games. This is something which came out, achieved something different, achieved something where it pushed the boundaries. It's something where it was, at the time, a really interesting and novel release. And that's never going to sort of, you know, top any kind of Hall of Fames, but it's certainly something where we should talk about it. This was just another exciting example of when there was a sense of freshness and vibrancy to the world of gaming because a new console had landed. It was pushing the boundaries of what we can achieve and so on. It's still something that we should sort of put up there and, and appreciate in some way, shape, or form. I like that. So a real keepsake of a very specific era uh, in in that sort of transitional period. Well, I think we pretty much, I think we pretty much covered it. Um, guess there's not much to say apart from that. Will I mean, um, yeah. And so that was jumping flash. And as the wheel turns from one episode to the next, we must spin an actual wheel to figure out what our next game is going to be. As it currently stands, we have Croc, Overblood, Shadow Man, Bart's Nightmare, Pokemon Snap, MechWarrior 2, Mercenaries, Faxanadu, and Pilot Wings for the SNES. One of these games will be part of our next episode. And so, we're going to spin the wheel. Oh, it's spinning. What are we going to get? Our next episode will be... Pokemon Snap! Holy sh... Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. Holy sh... <laughs> and on that note, let's roll into goodbyes, everybody. Okay, goodbye, everybody. Thank you very much for listening to episode two of Memory Card Lane. Thank you very much to the panelists, Steve and Sherwin. We will see you on the next episode with Pokemon Snap. Until then, take care.